Welcome, everyone, for what we know is going to be a memorable and a festive evening to celebrate uh, the arrival of uh, a portrait which will be in the permanent collection of the National Portrait Gallery of Alice Waters, and more about that uh, in a little bit. Uh, for this conversation, of course, we, we have two extraordinary people, and to introduce them and to give us a bit of context, uh, I want to turn to Jack Watson, who is the chairman of the commission of the National Portrait Gallery. Jack? Thank you, Marty. And to everyone, welcome to this wonderful, festive evening. We are so excited to have both Alice and Jose here, and we are, we are so thrilled that Alice Waters' portrait is coming into the permanent collection of the National Portrait Gallery. Quickly, I want to tell you that the event tonight really started almost a decade, actually more than a decade ago, when an extraordinary woman named Virginia Outwin Bootchever made a very generous gift to the Portrait Gallery to fund a national portrait competition we are in the third one now, and we have had for each of the two previous competitions, national competitions of portraiture in every, in every medium, over 4,000 applicants. So we are engendering in the country and among artists throughout the country a, a revived interest in American portraiture. And we are, so, we are so pleased that the, the portrait of Alice, which is being unveiled tonight, was done by the, the 2009 winner of the Outwin Bootchever competition, Mr. Dave Woody, whom you'll meet in a while. The Bootchever family is here with us. They continue to be very supportive in sustaining and expanding and enhancing this treasure of a national competition. John Bootchever is the esteemed vice chairman of the commission, and his sister, uh, Mary, will be talking to you at the presentation of the portrait. I also want to note that your, your generosity simply in being here is also supporting the efforts of this competition, and we thank you for that. First, a few words about Jose Andres. I just met Jose half an hour ago, and I'm blown away. The, guy's, the guy does five things at once. He was named the out, Outstanding Chef by the James Beard Foundation in 2011. He's an internationally recognized culinary innovator, a passionate advocate for food and hunger issues, an author a television personality and commentator and the chef and owner of the Think Food Group. To top it all off, he is in this neighborhood with us. For those of you who don't know, just a word about the Think Food Group. It's the team responsible under Jose's leadership for, among many other things, some of Washington's most renowned and enjoyable restaurants, Haleo, Zatina, Ovomel, and the minibar by Jose Andres. The bizarre 
restaurant at the SLS Hotel in Beverly Hills, which opened in 2008, was named in 2009 as, by Zugat as the top newcomer restaurant in 2009 and one of the top 10 best restaurants of the decade, to give you some idea. On another subject, but related, after Jose traveled to Haiti and following the earthquake, the devastating earthquake, he came back and he launched something called the World Central Kitchen, the goal of which is to feed and assist people who find themselves in humanitarian crises around the world. He has been called, and I love this, by Food and Wine magazine, the hero of the Spanish Revolution, (laughs) because he's been such a central figure in helping create the Spanish food boom in the United States. Another title that he's been given by the New York Times, which I love, is the boy wonder of Washington. Alice Waters. Alice Waters is the founder and owner of the legendary Chez Panisse restaurant and cafe, as well as the Edible Schoolyard program. She's recognized throughout the United States and around the world as a champion of the, I love this phrase too, the slow food movement. Chez Panisse and and indeed all of Alice's enterprises are dedicated to changing the way people think about food, about the way they prepare it, about the way they are supplied to do the food preparation, about the way they cook it. The effectiveness of Alice's efforts in the United States and indeed throughout the world are measured in part by the exponential increase in the number of restaurants, farmers markets, and mainstream grocery stores that now feature locally organic grown produce. She is, in the truest sense of the word, a pioneer. She's written several books. I want to mention two. Chez Panisse Cooking with Paul Bertoli and The Art of Simple Food. Alice is one of the most innovative, most articulate, most passionate advocates and activists about the way we think of food in the whole world. And the Portrait Gallery is honored this evening to have you here for this conversation and here for the unveiling of her portrait. So Alice, we have to have a conversation. But I don't want to have a conversation because what I want to know is even more about what I don't know about you. And I think all of you probably is the reason you're here. We know amazing things about this woman. You can go to Wikipedia or Google her or buy her books. Or it's a lovely literature about what this woman has accomplished. And the truth is that it's not very often that we find someone that has a will to do something 
a will to change things. We all have passions, but sometimes we keep those passions for our own. When we see a woman like Alice, that what she believes in, she decides not to be quiet, but to express herself through her dishes and to express herself through her opinions so she can help every one of us is really something to be applauded. So let's see if we are able to be taken away from her. That secret ingredient that made her, without a doubt, I will not say the most influential woman in cooking, but without a doubt, one of the most influential period people that were making this thing about food. So Alice, um, do you remember when we met? I do indeed. Right here in Washington. Right on the mall. And I can tell you it was this guy. <laughs> Your nephew called me. Told me, I'm bringing Alice Waters to your restaurant. And I went to the restaurant and I began asking every single cook, sous chef, where is this coming from? Is this local? <laughs> <laughs> and it was during the, um, the food uh, life festival at the mall, probably. Was that seven years ago? Six, seven years Six ago. Six, seven years ago. I can't remember the By the Smithsonian, the Folk Life Festival, one of the most amazing festivals anywhere in the world. And you came, and you came with a mission. I did. I did come with a mission. I don't know whether anybody came to our edible schoolyard there, but we built a garden, and we grew corn. In the middle um, of the mall. In the middle of the mall. In the middle of the mall. I think I have a picture of it in this book about the edible schoolyard. And it, because you, there were pictures that were taken, and you saw the Capitol building behind, and then you saw the, the corn there, and, and the, uh, the uh, label on the corn. If I she was like corn. a hippie from the 60s. Yeah. Uh, but still she is, for yeah. a reason... She made Berkeley her home. <laughs> and she's an activist at heart because she's always been and she always will be. But you came with a mission and you had the idea to put a place, not restaurant, but a place to share food. T tell us what, yeah. because a lot of people don't know. A restaurant in the middle of the mall with no walls. I mean, it wasn't, quite, it wasn't really a restaurant. Um, what it was? Uh, what I wanted to do, uh, and uh, Joan Nathan was uh, cheerleading in the back there all the time uh, for the Smithsonian and trying to negotiate what we wanted. And uh, I, I kept saying, you know, we really want to demonstrate what this could look like in a school. So we really want to plant a garden with all the real herbs, and we want to build the structure in the middle like a ramada where the kids come at the edible schoolyard in Berkeley and they sit at the beginning of the class and, and talk and decide what they're, they're going to be doing that day in the garden. And so it meant construction and it meant a huge amount of planting and planning to plant that had to go on. Well, it was a boiling hot summer. It was a boiling hot summer. And I think uh, the people who were asked to do this, who were part of Smithsonian, I, I think they had not quite 
the whole idea of how big I needed it to be. How, you know, I kind of wanted a quarter of an acre. I, I, I didn't. Well, let's I face it, she wanted the entire mall. I mean, I, I, I really wanted the whole mall. It was true. I, I really it. wanted the whole mall, but alas. Um, but they gave us the end, which was beautiful because it had a view right out to, out to the Capitol on that side. And what I wanted to do was uh, make a table there uh, under an awning, under a shade structure, and really pretend that the people we invited there were like the students who would come to the garden. So we built a wood-fired oven out on the mall, like the one that we had in Berkeley. And we asked our friend, uh, Ann Yonkers, at the farmer's market, would she neg- figure out how we could get the fruits and vegetables from the market. And we were going to invite people to the table that had never been seated together at one time. And, uh, and we were not sure that they would all come because we really wanted Hillary Clinton and Barbara Boxer and we wanted Tom Harkin and and when we called the offices they said well you know uh, they might drive by you know we're not sure they might come in and say hello but but I'm not sure that they can take off a half an hour or an hour and have lunch but we'll see how it works out. And we invited restaurateurs, and uh, we invited Robert from the D.C. Central Kitchen. We, we brought in activists. Um, it turned out that we, in the end, to, to make the garden work, I had to call every friend I knew uh, within about 200-mile radius, including... Uh, uh, all of the people that were involved, the students up at Yale who had built the Yale Sustainable Food Project and were involved in the garden there. And so we had this kind of massive effort to lift this idea up. And I have to say that when, um, you know, these very busy people came by and sat at the table, they didn't want to go. And so we had this beautiful opportunity to have people uh, that, that don't have lunch together, you know, having a conversation about edible education. And I think the really important moment for me was with Tom Harkin, because I was sit- seated next to him, and I said, you know, this idea is... I wanted it every school in the country. And he said, well, what, what did you have in mind? And I said, I want to feed every child for free at school. And I want to buy all the food from local sustainable farms from that region. And I want the cafeteria to be taken out of catering and put into academia. And I want it all tied together in the curriculum. And he said, I know what you mean. <laughs> he said, I get it. He said, I can't do that, but I get it. <laughs> I mean, you have to be really bold and think in a way that not every mind is able to think and see what we are not able to see. 
to put almost all your career on the line to say, I'm going to open this kind of edible farm in the middle of the mall because through my farm and through sharing food in a table, I'm going to be able to send the message I really want to send. But this is Alice, the activist we know for the last so many years. But I think that to understand the activist and the chef you've become and the influencer you've become, to a degree we almost have to go, obviously, back to your look beautiful and very young to me. You will always be young. But the younger years of the Alice, the beginner, when something happened in her that made her say, wow, food can be what can unite people and can be what change who we are. So you study in Berkeley and you move to France during your times that you were studying. And was a little market down in the street where you live that somehow had a profound influence in how you understood what it meant food and buying food and be close to the farmers and the fresh and, fruit, and fruits. So how, how, how that experience as a youngster in Paris, in France, began influencing the alleys that you are today? Well, you know, I think I have to really, um, you know, in a way go back to my childhood in, in New Jersey. And I, because it's those experiences you have when you're really little, and I'm sure you had them in Spain, where you're, um, you know, living very close to nature. And, and I, I, I grew up, you know, right, right then in the mid-40s, and my parents had a victory garden. And they didn't have very much money. And so we kind of, uh, you know, even though my mother wasn't a good cook, in fact, she was a very bad cook, uh, they did things like uh, make applesauce from from the apples on the tree, and they. Uh, I remember eating strawberries out in the garden, and they cooked rhubarb. And I I learned the name of all the flowers. And I I my mother used to take us for drives out to see the dogwood trees in the fall, and and what was happening, I mean, in, in the spring, and, and how the leaves were changing in the fall. And it was a very, um, I don't know, as a kid I ran wild out in the woods. I mean, you probably did too. I did. Uh, it's good luck. <laughs> it's good luck do, I don't he, make he my... He definitely ran wild. It, it's amazing. It's great I don't make my life as an interviewer or reporter, because <laughs> as you see, she answered uh, whatever she wanted. Um, I'll get to, I'll get she to went Paris. back many years before. <laughs> so what you're saying here that really your childhood growing up uh, with the Victory Garden, uh, sharing those meals at home, I don't know you, but me, very quickly, we will not go to restaurants yeah, because we had that. the money to go. So eating at home was a true necessity. But it was a necessity that was highly enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things probably I miss the most today. Is it the same experience you're yeah. sharing? Well, it was that. I mean, we all had to come to the dinner table. But you think about a population in this country where maybe as many as 85% don't have dinner with their family anymore. So just imagine that, that they're, 
they're kind of eating on the run or they're eating out there and digesting fast food nation values. They're out someplace else. And so I'm, I'm just talking about my childhood because I'm thinking about kids coming when they're very young into this kind of environment that happens in the school, that they can come to to smell and taste and be engaged in this way just naturally if they were to be involved with the production of food and the serving of food to each other um, as part of an everyday experience. It would bring in a whole different set of values that I think would be an incredible influence on their lives. I think it opens you up when, when your senses are stimulated in that way. You know, those are our pathways, as Montessori says, into your mind. And we need to touch and we need to taste and smell and see and hear uh, really finely in order to, to really be engaged with the world around us. So that's what it's about. And, and I think people who, before this period of time of, of uh, industrial food, that all of us around the world, whether we were brought up in Spain or, or in the United States, which is hard to believe, that in my lifetime, we have completely changed the way we eat. In my lifetime. So we have the possibility of changing back, coming back to our senses, coming back to real food. And I think in a way it's, it's, it's something so astonishing that, that I seem unusual, <laughs> you know, that I'm doing something really unusual by just wanting children to eat real food at school, to sit down at a table and to take their time and to connect with other friends and to have the pleasure of being connected to nature. I mean, it's a revelation every time I go over to the Edwards schoolyard and I, I, I can't believe how beautiful it is and how excited the kids are. For the people that don't know, tell us exactly about the schoolyard. You created, uh, in 1996, the Japanese uh, Foundation. Mm-hmm. And through the Japanese Foundation, you supported the schoolyard project. Tell us a little bit exactly yeah, about what it is. Um, it just happened in a very serendipitous way because I'm always talking about I'm always talking about how public education in Berkeley has deteriorated so much in an enlightened place like Berkeley that you could not pay attention to what the public schools looked like. But of course, that's happened all around California. We used to be number one in the nation in terms of excellence in the school. And because of the taxes uh, being sort of changed around to benefit uh, 
uh, how should we say, the people who had the money instead of the people who did not have the money. Uh, the schools were, were um, let go, and now we're number 47. 47 in the country. So we have a school system that uh, is unable to paint the building or mow the grass, uh, pay the teachers or have books and chairs. And I was remarking on the state of affairs to some reporter somehow, and the, the principal of King's School called me up, and he said, come into my office. And so I did. I did. I went over to the school, and he said, wouldn't you come and make a garden on the front of the schoolyard? Make it look better. And we walked around the school, and I said, you know, I don't want to just make a garden. Uh, you have such a, uh, so much space. And they had, it, but, but it was a school that was really built back in 1921 for 500 kids and they, on 17 acres of land. 17 acres of land back in 1921. And there are a lot of schools that still exist, particularly on the, on the East Coast, that have a lot of land uh, connected to them. But um, So I just walked around the school with them, and I just said, I want to do the whole thing, Neil. I, I, I think we should do uh, change the whole cafeteria, and we should build uh, the, the, the garden, and then we can ha- take all the produce into the cafeteria, and then it can go, they can eat lunch together, and then they can go take it all back to the compost heap. And I, I, just, I just went for the whole nine yards, and I said it could be a beautiful test ground with teenagers, because that's a very difficult group, and there were a thousand of them, seventh, seventh, eighth, and ninth graders. And I thought if we could bring them into a new relationship to food, one that's very positive, that we could change their eating habits and really bring them into a set of values that would help them take care of the land and nourish themselves and communicate with their family and friends for their whole life. Fascinating. So when you opened in 1971, Japanese, mm-hmm. I was two years old. <laughs> um, <laughs> I imagine that France had a big influence on you. It did. I imagine that the it life did. in the streets, those amazing markets. You traveled to Turkey. You were influenced by Turkey. But you are back in Berkeley and, and you open that, that place. What did you dream back in 1971 of what that place could be and how it differs from what has become? Well, I, I really just wanted a place to eat for myself and my friends. And that's the truth. I still want a place to eat for for myself and my friends. I didn't have any 
great expectations about it. I, I it was a, dis, a disillusioned, um, a very political person coming from Berkeley in the 60s. And I was teaching school, but I, I, I wasn't very successful with the kids. I was really impatient. And... Um, but I, I had this idea of a simple place that served real food. And I didn't know what that was, except I had a taste in my mind. And I still have a taste in my mind of the wild strawberries I ate in France, the creme fraiche, the oysters on the half shell. I, I felt like I had never eaten anything in my whole life. Not anything. I was, I was just kind of afraid of food and... I, I just, I kept it at an arm's length. But when you go into a culture, and I'm sure it's the culture of Spain back then, when people, uh, you know, were engaged in the, 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 the cooking of food for dinner and lunch for their families and friends, they had went to simple restaurants to eat, uh, you know, there were farmer's markets everywhere, around every corner. And it seemed to be just part of a rich and meaningful life. And, and I didn't know what, I just knew that food was part of that uh, sort of big cultural experience. And that's what I wanted to do. Uh, around probably 12 years ago, I had the opportunity with my wife to go to Japanese in a trip I did to Napa Valley. I called to make reservation to the restaurant, and obviously they're always full. But luckily for us, many years later, I think it was uh, 1980, you mm-hmm. opened Japanese. Upstairs. After 71, you opened upstairs, the, the Japanese cafe. I ate there with my wife. How many of you have you been to Japanese? How many of you in your life? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. Great. I went there, we ordered these uh, Monterey baby squid mm-hmm. that they were roasted briefly mm-hmm. in the wood-burning oven. I remember we ordered three orders. We, we, we got three orders of those, and the waiter told us, sir, we need to leave some for the other people. <laughs> but At one of the things, as a person, probably as a chef, that told me, come on. That cannot be true. And believe me, I didn't say that in a good way. It's when I order dessert and I get two clementines in a plate and two dates. And so I, <laughs> until that point, I had an amazing meal. I began understanding about the legacy of Ali's waters and Chippenham's. But when I got that, I was like, man, this is too much. This is what my man does at home when I grow up. <laughs> Well, we ordered three more plates of those clementines of those dates. Taste always has been unbelievably important to you. And you kind of learned that searching for the taste is how you got into knowing your farmers, the local. It's really about that. It's really about that. And that's what makes it so possible to make this kind of delicious revolution happen because when you give kids food like this and these are divine I wish I brought thousands you can all have them but these are kishu tangerines 
I'll just start throwing them out there. Um, uh, these are from a little farm in Ojai, California. And they're a, a, a beautiful little citrus that comes at this time of the year. And they're so easy to peel. I have to do it. <laughs> they're so easy to peel. And they're kind of, and they just are seedless. And they're, they're kind of sweet tart. And so when, when, when kids, you just go right ahead. When kids, um, okay, uh, let's be serious now. No, but, but I'm really, really serious. Um, it's unbelievable. When, when kids have this, they, they can eat a whole bowl like this. It's just like irresistible. And when I'm in most schools, and um, you smell the cafeteria, you just think, I don't want to go in there. I just don't want to go in there. It's like steamed broccoli without any seasoning. And all I could think of is, where's the garlic? Why are they doing this? Why, why can't we just have, you know, little um, tiny tomatoes just with the off the vine? Why do we have to have food that's cooked even? I mean, it's so delicious like that. And that's how the kids are out in the garden. You know, they may be doing a math class and measuring the beds, but they're eating all the raspberries. They know every one that's ripe. And they race out there, and they go and eat those first. They don't think this is school. They have a pleasure in doing this. And uh, considering the number of kids who drop out of high school, wouldn't it be an amazing thing to set up a business of running the cafeteria with the students? They run the whole thing themselves. They do the business of it. You've got to help us do one of these in Washington. I mean, can well, you imagine my way. that they, this has all uh, been designed by me because I prepare the classroom in a way so that people get what I want them to do in the end. And I, you got me a I, hello, Alice. You I, ask I, and you get. <laughs> but so, I do want him to do. I so, see I'm just so Alice, in front of you. You only think is small. Yeah, right. What's the next thing yep. in the life of Alice Waters? What are you going to be concentrating over the next 30, 40 years of your life? <laughs> where? No. Well, with I'm her, it's not about where she wants to go. With her, is where we are all going with her. <laughs> where are we going with you? We're going back to school. We're going back to school in a beautiful way. Now, I brought this poster because I thought... <laughs> so it's eating, reading, writing, and arithmetic. But that's it. Now, I think, uh, and I've had this as my focus all along, I think since the first... Uh, moment uh, that the, the idea of an edible education sort of came to me uh, in Berkeley. I wanted it to be in every school in the country. And I thought about it in the way, uh, you know, P 
P.E. came into the curriculum of the school. I thought E.E., P.E. and E.E. It could just be together like that. And I thought about how Kennedy had cheerleaded that idea back in the 60s and how beautiful it was that he got every school in this country to build uh, the facilities to have physical education become part of the curriculum that every kid had to take, and they got graded on it. Now, isn't that an amazing thing? He didn't spend money doing it, but he made the, the case for why it was an imperative why we needed to build the tracks, hire the teachers, and engage every child in physical exercise because he was worried about about the country and the physical fitness of, of everyone. And that's what I'm kind of hoping is that we can make this compelling enough that the President of the United States will say that we need to have edible education from kindergarten through high school, that we need to nourish every child at school because it's more expensive to take care of them when they become sick, and that this is not only uh, an obligation, but it's a moral obligation to feed children in school food that's good for them. And... At the same time, I sort of think of it as kind of a stimulus plan. You know, because if you put a criteria in for the buying of the food and you buy it from the sustainable farmers, you're giving the money to them. And the parents don't have to worry about what they're giving their children for lunch because the school is providing the lunch for the kids. And it's a kind of jobs plan, too, don't you think? That you have to hire people to help to cook and to teach the kids. So it's, I just think it's an idea that's right as rain. That's what I think. So it's something that just is a non-political idea. Yeah, right. We, <laughs> I was not so, lying when I was telling you that we are all already going ahead with this. <laughs> Because she's going to be knocking in the door on every one of us to join her on this, uh, we can call it crusade, but a mission in life. Uh, should we ask them, yes, let I them just, ask I just some questions? One, yes, we should ask them to huh? ask us questions. But the, so, one, last, one last thing is that I have been knocking on the door of our governor in California. And we have plotted and planned that we are going to do uh, uh, a, a sort of a te- form a task force for edible education in California, and we're going to do 10 schools around the state in strategic places and find philanthropists who will help to fund it and farmers who will help to build it along with teachers. And we're going to, fu- uh, to build these models that people will be able to walk into. And uh, the mayor of uh, Sacramento 
uh, Kevin Johnson. You know he's an impatient basketball player, used to be, uh, uh, in the NBA. And he really knows how to move quickly. And he says, we want the first school in Sacramento, and we want to do the high school, where the kids run the whole high school together. And so uh, even if it doesn't really happen um, with the governor's blessing, although I'm pretty certain that he'll well, give it to us, uh, if he, we're doing he, it in Sacramento. If he doesn't make it happen, probably he will not be reelected, knowing you. <laughs> so, so, questions? We have five, ten minutes or two, three, four. Madam? You're talking about me? <laughs> ah, but yeah, ah, sorry. The artisano. Uh, you're, you're working. No, no, I, I, I understood because no, I didn't know I, what I, she was talking about. That's why. Uh, no, well, uh, I am doing. You heard the, the question? <laughs> you heard the question? Yes. I am working on a book. Uh, uh, we're calling it The Art of Simple Food 2. <laughs> and it's going to be talking about uh, uh, backyard gardens. And um, we're. we're um, planning on having it finished for the fall of this year. And I hope it will encourage people to really plant wherever they can, whether it's a community garden, a flower box, a, 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 a I don't know, I, I think of the median strips, and I think of gardens uh, in public places, whether instead of pansies, you're uh, planting kale. And when you harvest it, it can be very nourishing for an awful lot of homeless centers. We did this in San Francisco uh, during the Slow Food Festival that we had, a uh, Slow Food Nation event that we had in San Francisco. But um, I think the, the most important work of the foundation that we're doing is building a website um, and collecting everyone's best practices around edible education. So we want to know about the smallest and the biggest projects that are happening. I went to a wonderful school today that was up on Capitol Hill. They actually called themselves an edible schoolyard, and I was so touched by it, uh, where they have a kitchen lab, and they're trying to get you, Jose, to get over there and teach the kids. <laughs> So you well, better, yeah, yeah, I, you I better get over there. Kitchen. But I was, Seriously, I was so pleased and the community. <laughs> that, because, that they, uh, they had collard greens and kale growing right at this time of the year, right out in that garden. That, that was an initiative for farmers' market. They were amazing. <laughs> uh, but but what a beautiful! Uh, I mean, started on really hardly any money, just small donations. But the encouragement of, of, of the farmers' markets in, 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 um, here in D.C. and a lot of volunteers. And that's how the edible schoolyard came into being. But 
Then we took it on as part of the foundation, just the way Jose Andres has, has taken on uh, a humanitarian project uh, to, to teach people how to feed themselves in the most difficult of, of uh, places. And um, that's, that's what we have to gather together, all of that information so that we can build curriculum without inventing the wheel, that we can can really find about the best ideas for serving lunch, the best ways to cook in all the places around the world. And I'm very encouraged about the possibilities of it. One more question. Sir? Yes, thank you for all the work you're doing on Dr. Sam What would be your ideal size? Because we're working with some gardens in uh, Washington, D.C., but uh, vegetable gardens and monarch butterfly gardens. What would be the ideal size and possibly the investment in those that would be edible gardens? Well, it, it really... It, uh, it, just depends, and I, I think that uh, I, even a very small garden can have a big impact on a student body. Uh, uh, it doesn't have to be a garden that's right there at the school. I think you can connect with a garden that's nearby. In in New York, um, there are uh, there's a edible schoolyard kind of garden at the botanical gardens in, in Brooklyn, and they connect with one of the schools that's nearby. But, you know, when I think about the edible schoolyard in Berkeley, and um, it's nice to have, um, you know, a nice little quarter of an acre so that um, you can bring a whole class out there. You have enough room that you can have some trees and and, and places to move, um, to have a compost heap, to, to, to really have uh, some of the special kinds of experiences in the garden. But to grow food, now this was something that I, I this is my naivete, but I really thought that we might be able to grow all the food we needed for the student body at King's School when we started the edible schoolyard. Uh, I mean, we might be able to grow mint for one day. But, I mean, it's just a craziness that, that I am so disconnected with what it takes to, to feed, um, you know, 500 people. Even at Chez Panisse, which is what we do, we have two big gardens of 25 acres plus... You know, we buy from probably 75 other people during the course of the year. So just think about that in terms of a school system. You could put a lot of farmers to work. Really incredible. So I think uh, this amazing night that we're going to be spending a lot of time with you and, and more celebration going on once we go out. Uh, I think to end, really... It's food for thought, no? When we see the amount of people in the United States of America, you could argue around the world, that they've come out of the kitchen of Alice Waters, of Chepanese, Judy Rogers, of SUNY Cafe, 
Gail Pirie, foreign cinema in San Francisco, Susan Goyne of uh, Lux in Los Angeles, uh, Dan Barber of Blue Hills, so many others. Those are people that came directly from Japanese. There are many others that we've not been working on Japanese, but directly, indirectly, we've been highly influenced by, by what she has been doing all these years, by her constant knocking on the door, telling <laughs> you, you need to change your ways. Um, you know, I think her restaurant, when she opened in 1971, was a Trojan horse. Was the Trojan horse to fool everyone <laughs> that maybe didn't believe that the way to move forward is with the fruits and vegetables and knowing your farmers and all the things she believes in. But as you see, the restaurant was a Trojan horse because she is not really trying to change a neighborhood. She's not even trying to change a city or a state. She has the project of be changing the country. And I think I want to end with... Uh, paraphrasing the Briyat Sabaran, 1820, 1826, most influential book, at least on me, the man who said, uh, tell me what you eat and I will tell you who you are. But the most powerful phrase this man wrote was, the future of the nations will depend on how they feed themselves. That's a powerful phrase. And if we have to embrace that phrase in a person, I don't think it's a better person really to help us maintaining the north of where should we go, where are we supposed to be going than Alice Waters. So I know we are going to be celebrating her outside, but I do believe we need more than one recognition. So help me give her a big round of applause for everything she has. Thank you. That was beautiful.